0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. For the last five weeks, we have been in the midst of this series called Authentic. Where we have looked at Jesus' confrontation of the scribes and the Pharisees and how he he called out their imitation uh, religion as he called them and us into an authentic faith. And we've seen that for a number of weeks, and we're going to conclude that study with part five here this morning. But before we look at those verses, I want to just reflect for us just for a moment back on 1988. Now, I realize when I say that, there are some of you in this room who were not born in 1988, though it feels like just yesterday to me. Uh, But when we think about what happened in 1988, the world was in the midst of the Cold War. And there was this showdown between the United States and the Soviet Union and a number of friends on on both sides. There were some climactic events that were happening around that time, and in 1988, there was a nuclear arms summit that was called between the USSR and the United States in Moscow. And President Ronald Reagan was going to be going to Moscow to represent the U.S. in those negotiations. Now, as the Soviets were preparing for that day, they realized that their country was experiencing some challenges. Communism had not delivered all that it had promised, and their capital city was in somewhat of a state of disrepair. And so the Soviets knew they needed to remodel their city, but the problem was they had neither the time nor the money to completely overhaul this massive city. So they came up with an ingenious idea, and their idea was this. President Reagan would not be traveling throughout the city, he would only be going on certain roads, and staying in certain rooms. So they focused their renovation only on the places where Reagan would be traveling. And then they took it even one step further. They reasoned that Ronald Reagan was an old man at that time, and his eyesight was not good enough to see very far. So in the midst of this city with skyscrapers all around, they only bothered to paint one floor up believing that Reagan could not see anything beyond that point. And so they went about uh, renovating the city. Now, we don't know for sure uh, if Reagan was fooled. Um, We do know that the Cold War soon ended, so maybe he wasn't fooled. Uh, But the the reality was, as, as Reagan toured this city, they thought that they could tell him where to go and that his limitations would prevent him from seeing what they didn't want him to see. Now, friends, The sad reality of that little anecdote from history is that some of us take a similar approach to the God of the universe. We take a similar approach to Jesus Christ. We think that we can route his parade only through certain streets of our lives and only into certain rooms of our lives with a belief that we could control what he sees. And if we could control what he sees, he might not see the depth of our sin, But Jesus Christ is not an aging president with failing eyesight, and we cannot tell him where he cannot go. Therefore, a similar approach to him will always come up empty. And the Pharisees found that out. In the first century, they had a religion that was designed to take people down certain streets and only look one story up. And if that was the case, they looked righteous, but Jesus saw through it. He saw through their religion, and he, and he saw their need for a Savior. And He called out their imitation while calling them into an authentic faith. And friends, this morning as we conclude our study by looking at the last four woes that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees, a woe being a pronouncement of judgment. As we look at those last four woes that Jesus pronounces on them, my hope is that, that we too would hear these and, and not stay hiding in our religion, but we would come out from underneath our religion, that we would run to the Savior and we would see His saving power at work in our very lives. We're going to see this today as we look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 36. So, If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then after I've, I've read them, we'll, we'll back up and see three things today from those four woes about what it looks like for us to have an authentic relationship with God. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking, he's talking to the crowds, he's talking to the disciples, but he also is clearly talking to the scribes and the Pharisees at the back edges in the temple courts, and this is what he continues to say. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you're straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, you hypocrite! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, you hypocrite! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Friends, in those verses today, we're going to see three things about what an authentic relationship with God looks like and what the imitation does. The first thing that we're going to see is this, wait for others, wait for others. Now, we see this in verses 23 and 24, in the first woe that Jesus mentions in this section that we just read. Now, what was happening was the the Pharisees were majoring on the minors. They they were taking secondary and smaller issues of theology and they were elevating them to issues of supreme importance while at the same time neglecting the more important and more clear issues of God's law. Now, the example that, that Jesus uses for the Pharisees in this regard was their understanding of the tithe. Now, that word tithe is a word that literally just means a tenth. And the Old Testament law included commands to God's people to, to give a tenth of what the, the Lord had provided them back to uh, different areas. As a matter of fact, there were a number of different tithes that the Old Testament people would give as they would give contributions back to things related to the temple or to the nation of Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the first century, as Jesus approaches the Pharisees, there were a number of different views about how that tithe should be applied. And, and some of those views, we might put them in, in modern terms in this way. Should I tithe off of the gross or should I tithe, tithe off of the net? Should I tithe off of what's on my W-2 or should I tithe off of also what I get for my birthday? I mean, how does this work, God? What, where do you want me to go Uh, What's on the bottom line? How do I determine what I give? I mean, those were the kinds of things where there was debate. And specifically in the first century, it looked this way. Should I tithe only on the big issues of my crops? In other words, should I only tithe off of the grain that I grow in the field, the wheat? Or should I also tithe off of the herbs that I grow in my garden? Should I tithe only on the wheat or should I also give of that which God has blessed me with in terms of the dill, the mint, and the cumin. Now, in the first century, there were a number of different perspectives on this, and the Pharisees actually had, surprise, surprise, the most conservative understanding of this, the most radical, and their view was you tithe on all of it. So when they would give their offering, they would give of their wheat, but they also would give of their herbs, And they would do so in a grandiose way so that everybody knew just how spiritual they were. Now, what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't come to them and say, hey, guess what? You guys have got this tithe issue wrong. I want you to only give off of the grain. And he doesn't come to them and commend them and say, hey, you're getting this so right. Your position is so good. You ought to write a book on this topic because you guys have nailed it. No, what does Jesus do? while at the same time commending them for having a position on this secondary issue, Jesus calls them to respond in obedience on the obvious stuff, what he calls the weightier issues of the law. They they were very meticulous in their application of the secondary, but they were missing the primary. Now, what does Jesus say were the primary things? What were the weightier issues? Well, he tells us, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, they had developed elaborate theological positions about how much they should give and where they should give and and how it should go and those kinds of things, but they were missing obvious applications in the way that they treated other people. Justice means nothing apart from justice in relationship with another, right? Mercy means nothing apart from mercy extended to another. And when we think of the issue of of faithfulness, I think he was getting at a relationship with God because this list of justice and mercy and faithfulness, do you know what it sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like a very prominent Old Testament verse, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. What does the Lord require of me but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? Jesus here was, was was talking about justice and mercy towards others, but a faithfulness or a humble, dependent relationship upon God. The Pharisees were really good at verses they could memorize and checks they could write, but they had not given God, their hearts, they were not dependent upon Him, and they weren't allowing that dependence upon Him to transform the way that they were relating to others. When I say wait for others, I mean waited in the way in which their faith was impacting their relationship with others. Now, it's important for us to see a real-world example of this, because when you think about what this led the Pharisees to do, it led them to take stands on on secondary issues while missing major things. And, And what's getting ready to happen with Jesus is a great example of that. You know, when they arrest Jesus and they take him to Pilate's house for the trial, John chapter 18 verse 28 tells us what happens. You know what happens? The Pharisees go, we cannot go inside your house, Pilate, because that would defile us from public worship. But instead, we'll hand you an innocent man and ask you to kill him. That's the kind of of hypocrisy that was happening with the Pharisees. They were majoring on the minors while missing major applications. We see that play out. Now, do we ever struggle with that? Do, do Do we ever struggle today as people who can have really developed and articulate positions on secondary issues while missing obvious applications? Friends, I think the answer to that is sure, right? Absolutely, it's possible for us to develop. Now, again, notice Jesus does not say don't have positions on secondary issues. It was absolutely appropriate for the Pharisees to have a conviction about how they would apply the principle of tithing. But Jesus says, don't do those things to the neglect of the obvious. And so I want to make a couple of of observations and challenge us a little bit today. And as I do so, I may step on some toes. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If your toes get stepped on easily, could you just scoot them back a little bit so that when this comes rolling down the aisle, maybe it won't. Now, some of you, when I I say what I'm getting ready to say, some of you will not even know what I'm talking about, Um, but those who need to hear this, like me, will understand where I'm coming from. Friends, if your view of mode of baptism, how much water is used in baptism, is greater than your celebration when a lost person comes to faith in Christ, then maybe you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. If your view on election or the extent of the atonement trumps your ability to share the gospel with someone that you meet and the love that you might extend to them. And you might be straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And I could go on and list a number of other areas and issues, but you get the point. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you guys have defined the law in such a way. You're driving me down certain streets. You only want me to look one floor up because if that's the way that it happens, then you're exceeding in the area of of tithing on the dildamit and the cumin. You're nailing that one. But how about the rest of the city that has fallen into disrepair? How about the obvious things that they were missing? Love, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Not just giving god our, our our heads or our hands, but our hearts as well, friends Jesus challenges the Pharisees, he challenges us he he tells us to wait for others. second thing though that we see is the next couple of woes that that Jesus gives, and that is that he gives a challenge to wash the inside to wash the inside. Now the way he does this is. He's, he's going to be using two different examples where merely the outsides of things are cleaned while the insides are still dirty. The, the first example that he gives in, in that regard has to do with a, a, a cup and a plate. He says, Pharisees, you guys are like cups and plates that have been cleaned on the outside, but inside are gross. We might think of it this way. Imagine you got up this morning and you were going to have a bowl of cereal but your dishes were missing. They were stolen in the middle of the night. And so you go to your neighbor's house to get a dish to, to eat your cereal out of. And they look and there is a used bowl on the countertop. It's got that, 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 that film of, of white in the bottom. It's a used cereal bowl. We don't know how long it's been sitting there. Some Cheerios that have been cemented to the side of that bowl. And they say, you're welcome to use this bowl. And they take a rag and they wipe the outside of that bowl. And then they hand it to you. and They say, look, I've even cleaned it for you. Now, from a distance, it might look clean, but upon closer examination, it's got the white film, it's got the Cheerios cemented on the side. How many of you are going to add your cereal to that bowl? It'd be gross, right? Jesus is making a similar point. He says, Pharisees, your lives have been wiped on the outside in such a way that those from a distance might look at you and call you righteous. But upon closer examination, I see some gross stuff on the inside. You might be able to fool others, Jesus says, but you're not fooling me. Then he moves on and he makes what seems to be the same point, but actually it's slightly different when he talks about the whitewashed tomb. In verse 27, he says, the Pharisees are like a whitewashed tomb. Now, what is a whitewashed tomb? Well, the answer to that is quite obvious. It's a tomb that has been painted white, right? But, but to our ears, we, we might miss a little of the nuance of what Jesus was saying, and in the first century, in the area around the city of Jerusalem, there were a number of tombs that were, that were there. And during times of pilgrimage, when a number of travelers would be coming to the city of Jerusalem, uh, those tombs needed to be marked or highlighted so that people would avoid them. And so at that time, the, the religious leaders would go out into these surrounding areas and they would find these tombs and they would paint them white, a bright white, to instruct the educated people who were coming to Jerusalem for the festival to stay away from that. Now, why? Because Numbers chapter 19 verse 11 says that for a Jewish person to come in contact with a dead body was to make them ceremonially unclean. So these tombs were full of dead bodies. And so they would paint them white so that people would avoid them. Now, educated people would understand that, but others who were traveling at the first century who didn't know what the white paint was for might go, now that looks like a nice building. Let me go hang out there. And they'd go inside, there'd just be dead bodies, Raiders of the Lost Ark, whatever, right? That, that, that was what was going on. Well, here's the point that Jesus was trying to make. To those who were educated and in the know, Jesus was letting them know, hey, stay away from the Pharisees. Stay away from their lives. They have been painted on the outside, but inside of them is death and not life. Don't go where they go. Don't do what they do because it doesn't take you to where you want to go. Some who were uneducated might make the mistake of believing that the Pharisees were living in righteousness, but Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew that they were not. Now, what does he say was inside of them? Well, he says to the first situation that they were full of greed and self-indulgence. He says of the second situation that they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These were folks who were concerned with their reputation, but their character had eroded away. D.L. Moody has this great statement. He says, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. But the reality of the Pharisees was they were worried about their reputation while their character was missing. Now, when we hear this idea of washing our inside, we are tempted to respond by saying, okay, I need to clean my inside. I need to get to work. Where do I go to buy the cleanser that I can put to work to clean the interior of my life? I mean, the Pharisees were built on a system of self-reliance. No doubt if they were to take seriously what Jesus was saying, there would have been the temptation for them to go, okay, I need to get to work, make another list of how I can clean the inside of my life as well as the outside. But they would be missing the point. And if we respond today by merely thinking of what we can do, we would be missing the point as well because it's possible for us to hear this and want to apply it only in in trying to reconcile our exterior with our interior. Because let's be honest, there's a gap between our exteriors and our interiors. Um, Pastor John MacArthur says, all of us preach a better message than we live. The gospel's just that great. There's a gap between what we know and what we profess and what we're able to live. And there's a gap between even the depth of our relationship with God and the length of our prayer life and at times how we pray in groups. Sometimes we pray in groups in a way that's really impressive to everybody else, but it might be the first time we've prayed in a week. We're trying to pass it off like this is what we do every morning in our time. We might want to manage our perception in social media in such a way so that people would, would think that we're more spiritual than we really are. And it's possible for us to read these verses and to, be re- to recognize that gap. And there's nothing wrong with us recognizing that gap, but here's what we, we can't miss, friends. The Pharisees could not clean the inside of their lives, and neither can we. We cannot clean our inside. There is no bottle of Windex that we can buy that will clean our souls. We need a cleaner to clean our souls. That cleaner is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is able to enter into our lives and to transform us, to see those private hidden sins and to die for them so that they can be forgiven, to come into the interior of our life and to provide the provision of his spirit so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth and not just in the externals. Friends, we talk about washing the inside of our life. It is a task that we are not up to, but he nails it every single time. Jesus confronts the Pharisees, but he confronts them, really inviting them to have their souls cleansed by him. As we read these verses today, let's let's not miss that application. Are we running to Christ and trusting in him to clean us on the inside, not just for us to behave on the outside? Well, the first thing we learn is that we're to wait for others. The second is that we're to wash the inside. But the the third thing that that we see inside of these woes that Jesus pronounces is that we are to welcome the Lord. Now, we see this in verses 29 down through 36. Now, in these seven verses that wrap up this section, it is really important for us to, to, to feel them, not just to read them. It's important for us to see the the emphatic nature and the emotional nature in which Jesus delivers them. When I say emphatic, I mean emphatic because Jesus is giving his strongest words that he gives in the gospel in pronouncing judgment upon others in these verses. I mean, think of what he says. He calls them serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers. He says that they're going to be sentenced to hell. I mean, that is as strong as it gets. It's emphatic. But not only is it emphatic, it's emotional. The way that we have arranged these verses in in terms of our study, we, we can miss that verses 37 through 39 immediately follow verse 36. Last summer I preached verses 37 through 39. I think it's important for us to remember them in the context. What happens in verses 37 through 39 is that after pronouncing these woes, Jesus looks out on the group and He begins to cry and to cry out not saying, see, I told you, I I won it, I nailed it, I won the debate, I've totally teared you apart. That's not what Jesus does. What does he do? He weeps and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a mother hen does for chicks, and yet you would not let me. Friends, it's emphatic and it's emotional. Jesus is pronouncing these judgments because of His love for them. Now, that's hard for us to see because sometimes we don't associate saying hard things with love, but that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Spurgeon says this, he says, "...He is not the most loving who speaks the smoothest words, but true love often compels an honest man to say that which pains him far more than it affects his callous ears." Jesus was moved in this moment. He was inviting them to, to welcome him and not reject him. But the Pharisees were, were, were unwilling. Now, how does Jesus make this point? Well, he makes this point by, by talking about some tombs in the first century. And around the city of Jerusalem in the first century, there were a number of different monuments that had been built for Old Testament prophets who had been martyred. And believe it or not, there were a lot of Old Testament martyrs. Uh, you know, so when God would send prophets, they were often rejected by his people. This is not a New Testament phenomenon. This was an Old Testament thing as well, from Abel all the way through Zechariah, from those mentioned in the, the, the book of Genesis, the first book, to those mentioned in Second Chronicles, the last book, the way the Hebrews organized the Scripture, the last book of their Scripture. There were examples of prophets that have been killed for preaching God's Word throughout the history of the nation of Israel. And in the first century, the Pharisees come along and they want to convince everybody that they wouldn't have done that had they been alive. So how do they, how do they try to make that argument? Well, they, they try to make that argument by building monuments for dead Old Testament prophets. One of those is, is this monument you see behind me. This is the tomb of the prophet Zechariah. Now, this is right outside the, the wall of the city of Jerusalem. I took this picture um, just last spring when I was there, and so this, this is still, still there to this day. But one of the things that's interesting about this tomb of Zechariah is that Zechariah is not there, nor has Zechariah's body ever been there. This tomb of Zechariah was actually built in the first century by the Pharisees. And they built this this tomb, this monument, as if to say, hey, if we'd have been alive at the time of Zechariah, we would have embraced him, believed him, repented, and followed. We would not have been like our ancestors who rejected him and killed him. And they thought building this monument would be evidence that they were with Zechariah, not with those who killed him. But what's the problem with that way of thinking? In light of the context of this whole section, what's the problem with their thinking? No monument can hide the fact that the prophet of prophets, the king of kings, the son of God, walked up in front of them, and what do they want to do with him? they want to embrace him and welcome him? No, what do they want to do? They want to kill him. And by their actions, not by their monuments, by their actions, they are revealing that they are like those of their forefathers who rejected the prophets of old, not like the prophets themselves. If they were like the prophets, they would have recognized Jesus, the one that Zechariah spoke about, and they would have embraced him in faith. But because they were like those who killed the prophets, they built a monument, but they killed the Christ. Now, How does Jesus respond to that? I mean, he's going into this thing eyes wide open, right? He knows what's going on with them. He understands it. He calls it out. He knows they're getting ready to kill him. What does he do? He has presented the gospel and they have said no. He got to that point of the presentation and they said, thanks, but no thanks. How does he respond? Well, let's think about what he could have done. Son of God, He could have called down fire from heaven and consumed them immediately, but He doesn't. What does He do? Well, He talks about many more who will come and present this same message for the rest of that generation. The wrath that was building in this cup that would ultimately be poured out on the nation of Israel would not really be poured out until 70 A.D., when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and the Jews were scattered about the world again. That means that for 40 years after Jesus is rejected, he sends wave after wave after wave of people to proclaim the good news again. Sadly, they are no more received than he is, Jesus calls out and says that as he sends these folks, they will not be welcomed, they will be killed and crucified. Verse 34 says, they will be flogged in the synagogues and persecuted from town to town. That's what the faith that awaited those who proclaimed the word of Christ, played out in history. But the fact that he would send them is an evidence of his, of his grace and of his mercy. I think it's... Fascinating to to think about Matthew writing those words. Jesus said them, but Matthew wrote them. And and Matthew, who wrote his gospel, wrote his gospel at some point in the 50s A.D. You know when Matthew was flogged for the first time because of his his faith in Christ? In about 35 A.D. Acts chapter 5, verse 40 lets us know. That means as Matthew writes down the words of his gospel, he does so with a back that is scarred from the beating that he has taken in Jesus' name. And not only does he do so with a scarred back and knowing that this portion of what Jesus said has come true, but Matthew is writing this down knowing that just as he has been flogged, so also will he be killed. But in the midst of it all, I believe Matthew saw the grace and the mercy of God, who gave people a chance to repent. Friends, if you have reached out to someone and you have shared the gospel with someone and invited them to follow Christ with you, and they have rejected that, they have not welcomed in the Lord, but they have turned him away, I want you to, and that person is still alive, I want you to take just a moment and thank God for his grace and mercy. In the moment of their rejection, judgment did not come because God is still pursuing them. If you have ever had the gospel proclaimed to you and you rejected it the first time you heard, or even you're still in a position of rejecting the gospel, not welcoming the Lord, but turning it away, I want you to take a moment and just thank God. By virtue of you sitting here with us today, that means that God did not judge you in that moment of your rejection, but He has continued to send waves of people to you proclaiming to you, inviting you, begging you to trust in Christ and His provision so that your sins might be forgiven and your eternity might be secured. From what a gracious and merciful God that we know. He is pursuing us and inviting us to welcome Him in. The question is, are you trusting in Christ? Warren Wiersbe Says this. He says, the holy life of Jesus exposed, there being the Pharisees, artificial piety in shallow religion. Instead of coming out of the darkness, the Pharisees tried to put out the light and they failed. So you and I can run to the light this morning as well. There may be death in our tomb, but guess who has a special relationship with death. Jesus Christ, who can resurrect our very lives. Let's go before him in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the, the truth of the gospel. And I thank you so much, Father. As I, as I look around this room, I'm, I'm just moved at the reality that, that you have been so patient with each of us. I think about my own life. I think about the stories of many that I know in this room, and I'm just so encouraged that you are patiently pursuing us, but we know that patience will one day have an end. And so, Father, I pray that while we are in this generation, while we still have breath, while we still have life, that all of us would run to you, not just to tidy up our outside, but to, but to cleanse our inside as well. To unite us with you, that we might live out the your issues, that you've called us to today, that we might live in relationship with you and in love for others. We thank you. Pray that everyone who hears my voice now, that we would be trusting and leaning upon Jesus for our hope and for our forgiveness and for our life. That You would give us that authentic faith. In Jesus' name we pray.